Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I begin talking about what a divine being would need to be like to avoid the Euthyphro Dilemma. This podcast serves as a kind of preface to the next couple of podcasts, which will provide a little bit of a clearer comparison of sophistic theology versus non-sophistic theology. We discuss in this episode primarily the problem of how speaking clearly and systematically about God, in fact, tends to lead us into a view of God that Euthyphro would be quite comfortable with, and which would result in the Euthyphro Dilemma. So we try to speak about things that are central to the nature of a non-sophistic God, but really can't be said very cl- or described very clearly, that is, things like love and goodness. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Please check out tacticalfaith.com for information about how this nonprofit works to encourage the life of the mind in the church, and to see those other things we're talking about, uh, from thoughts on politics, questions about social justice these days, interviews with everyone from former NASA engineers to the chaplain of Alabama University's football team, and you can also find ways to contact us and support us. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Last time we left you on a cliffhanger, and I'm sure those of you who listen, like the minute this comes out, have been waiting with bated breath for the conclusion of the Euthyphro Dilemma. Because in the previous episode, we showed that the Euthyphro Dilemma arises out of Euthyphro's view of God. And and it's not just Euthyphro's view of God, but, you know, some Christians even have this view that, you know, because God has the power to smite me, uh, I have to do what he says. And that's very similar to what Euthyphro was getting at. The question we're going to wrestle with today is what, when Socrates said, I don't think the gods are like that. When we as Christians say, we don't think the triune God is like that. Um, are we actually justified? Do, do, are we talking about a God that escapes the, the problem of the Euthyphro dilemma? As we, engage with this, we're going to be pushing in some ways that uh, I would say a lot of scholarship on the Euthyphro Dilemma seems to miss the point of. So what we're saying, if you're listening to us thinking that what uh, that you can just copy what we say into an intro to philosophy class and it's going to be amazing, know that what we're saying is not probably what your philosophy professors think is going on when they're talking about Euthyphro. Unless you have a good philosophy professor. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've seen that the way that Euthyphro views the gods results in the Euthyphro dilemma. And it's because Euthyphro can only see the relationship between piety and the gods. There's the only meaningful relationship, given that the gods themselves aren't virtuous or good in any natural way, is that, is that it's causal. The gods cause piety by virtue of exerting a kind of power, basically the power, the threat to you. Um, and, we, we, and we see this idea of the threat in, th- throughout some of Plato's works as well, maybe most obviously at the beginning of the Republic, but elsewhere as, as well, where, you know, the um, the old man, uh, Cephalus, that Socrates is talking to at the beginning, is very concerned about making sure he makes his sacrifices so he gets a good afterlife. Which, again, brings up this sort of transactional nature of, of these gods. So these, these, go- these sophist gods are, as Euthyphro describes them, what kind of god 
what do you need to think about God or how do you need to perceive God or how does God need to be or the gods, but let's just say God, we'll talk about Christianity now, to be able to avoid resulting in the Euthyphro dilemma? Well, obviously we don't want a God, you know, a triune God in which the three persons are at war with one another. That would be a problem. Or a God who is divided within himself in some way that causes, you know, multiple personality disorder or something. We can't have that. Obviously the God can't be full of vice. So what what does this God need to be like? Uh, Maybe you you can think of some some ideas. It seems like our initial response would be, well, God needs to be good. But what that seems that to throw, mean? yeah, that seems to throw us into the second horn of the dilemma, right? That, okay, so God needs to live up to a standard that's above and beyond God. Well, that doesn't seem like a good standard either. In which case, we don't even need God to know what, what is good. Right. Or not. So the fundamental problem here is the issue of how we understand goodness and how it relates to our nature. Our problem is, I think, whenever we talk about ethics, we can't, we almost cannot help ourselves. We end up speaking it, speaking about it in sophistic terms, where ethics is external or the good is external to us in some way. It's not a part of our nature. Socrates talks about, I mean, he says the gods can't, I don't believe the gods are that way. That doesn't give you a lot of information. But he does believe, Socrates apparently believes that the gods need to be somehow good. But what does that mean? Well, they need to be, they need to not just be good because they live up to a standard. It's like good needs to be a part of who they are. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? I mean, because when, you know, as we've talked in, other episodes we all think that we're aiming at goodness when we do actions even if we might say well not everyone might think that but i see goodness in what i'm doing um how does that not just uh become us making uh what we want to be good uh what god wants to be good yeah we have a tendency to make god look like ourselves and frankly i'm the only one that's right (laughs) Well, let's 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 begin. Let's begin first by 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 staying in the abstract, uh, and and then we'll come down to deal with the Aristotelian point you're kind of making, and really, actually, it's a Platonic point too. Everyone's aiming for the good. Plato believes that. Well, there's some debate about whether Plato believes that, but arguably, everybody's aiming for the good. It's just some people, most of us, are wrong. All of us are wrong some of the time. Most of us are wrong a lot of the time. But let's just talk about what Plato says. Plato describes the gods in the Phaedrus, in a conversation with the Phaedrus, he describes the gods as needing to, they get their nutrition from the good itself. And so they feast upon the good slash beautiful. These were capital G, capital B, the good itself. They feast upon it in such a way that that their nature is sustained by the good. So put in a different way, Ethics is essential to their nature. It is not something that's added on. It's not that they have a bunch of power and then they happen to be good, which might be how we view. Well, I think a lot of Christians have a tendency to view God that way. I don't know if they would say it out loud because we do say God is good all the time and all the time God is good. 
But what we really think is God is powerful and has been forever. Thank uh, goodness that God is good. Because if God weren't, that'd be terrible. And even when great tragedies happen, we still feel that we have to affirm that. Even if we also say God was behind somehow this great tragedy. But we we know it's good. We know it's good. Um, Well, yeah, we, we have a tendency particularly when it's happening to someone else, when a tragedy is happening to us, I think we have this sense, maybe God isn't good. Or at least maybe God has a sense of humor and I happen to be the butt of his jokes. But we do have a tendency to believe that God is good. And we, we've, and there's, there's a, there's a, a complex point here that I'm not sure I've worked out completely, but it seems like there's an alignment between thinking of God as, as a powerful God who happens to be good and also the demand to be optimistic, confusing optimism with with joy, or confusing joy with just optimism among Christian. Like we Christians aren't really focused on joy; we're focused on we believe that what it means to be joyful is to be optimistic. And I'm not sure optimism is what we should be aiming for. I think hope is what we should be aiming for, and hope and optimism aren't. If I'm reading, if if the people I'm reading are correct, hope and optimism are in fact not even in the same ballpark. They're sort of opposed to one another, strangely enough. That doesn't mean we should be pessimists because pessimism and hope aren't in the same ballpark either. Um, But pessimism and optimism have more in common than either one has with hope. Hmm. But the idea, um, the idea is that God, that the that goodness is essential to God's nature. And what that means, when we say essential, we mean this in a, I mean this, and I think Plato means it in a philosophical sense. It means if you take away goodness, you can't imagine God. So what is essential to a triangle is that it has three sides. So imagine now a triangle with four sides. Can't do it. Well, you can't. I mean, you can't even conceive of it. You can say the words, you can say triangle with four sides, but there is nothing that 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 proposition that or that the, that that phrase attaches to. You can't even conceive of it. Well, can you conceive of of a god who's not good? Well, yeah, we do. We have all the time. Well, then we're there. We're there's something fundamentally wrong about the way we're conceiving God. I I think it would be harder for many people to conceive of a God without power than a God who's not good. Yes. And by power, we mean the capacity to create and the capacity destroy. to destroy the same as any other King, except bigger power, more power. And this, this is, I think the flaw that Socrates is getting at and this is the flaw that I think Jesus is getting at and that Paul is getting at in the way that we perceive God, the way we perceive what God will do. Uh, Paul says he preached Christ crucified. He decided just to reduce it to that. Why would God preach Christ crucified? Or why would Paul preach Christ crucified? I mean, he needs to include the resurrection. I know our modern views of salvation don't require the resurrection but it's kind of important. Uh, that's sort of a joke too. It's a criticism. That's sort of a joke. But why would he preach Christ crucified? Because Paul is declaring who God is and how God loves us. And the clearest image of who God is, 
is when Jesus is lifted up. On the right? cross. On the cross. And N.T. Wright and some others claim that the, I think it's N.T. Wright, claim that Jesus on the cross was in fact an enthronement ceremony, hmm. which means that God's fundamental nature is self-giving. Because God's power, the way we think of power, is an outgrowth of that, is, I think our problem here is we can only think of power in one way, and that is empire power. The power to build up and to destroy. What is the nature of God's power? Well, whatever it is, it grows out of his love. Right. Because God is fundamentally loving. According to my Bible, uh, which is better than yours, uh, according to, right, the only place where there's like God is, and it's not just an adjective, but a noun, is God is love. That doesn't mean God is the way that people feel for one another. That's stupid. This isn't Star Wars, <laughs> right? God, but I mean, I think the Holy Spirit working in us is part of what is part of our love. But God isn't reduced to someone's feelings for another person. What it means is that God's essential nature is loving. So God the Father in eternity begat the Son, Um and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son, if you buy the filioque thing. Um, and these are a, these three are an eternal love with one another. If that love were not there, they would be divided. And we wouldn't have one God and three persons. We'd have three gods or we just have God the father wiping the other two out because he's tired of their noise and being alone. But there is no time when there wasn't the son. There's no time when there wasn't the spirit. Which means God is eternally in an act of self-giving love, in acts of self-giving love. And we see, we finally see this manifest in the flesh in Christ. This is why we're preaching, this is why Paul's preaching Christ crucified, because that's who God is. This this is this is the Messiah that that Israel wasn't looking for. Because you don't defeat the Roman Empire by dying to them. You defeat the Roman Empire by killing them. But Jesus defeated the Roman Empire by dying. How? Well, love spread. The whole, and I mean love in a very specific way. Don't get all dumb on me. But uh, I mean, I mean love in the sense that that all the boundaries got broken down. Boundary between we talked about this uh, in one of the previous podcasts. The boundary between Jew and Gentile broke down. The boundary between barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. All these bar, all these boundaries were broken because they didn't matter anymore in terms of who got reached out to the status, the status symbols were gone. This right. Everyone's invited into the feast. The power of the empire is the power to kill, exclude, exile, so on and so forth. What's the power of God? Where well, it seems to be the opposite of that overcoming death, right? The power of God is to allow yourself to be killed, take up your cross. And because of that, you overcome the power of death. Christ rises, you know, is raised from the dead, and then including drawing in. This gives us a little more detail to maybe what Socrates was pointing at, right? What does it mean that the gods in Socrates' view uh, were fed, were nourished on the good and the beautiful? It means at, at the heart of their very nature, they needed the good and the beautiful to survive. The thing is, Socrates didn't just think the gods were that way. He thought we were that way. Mm -hmm. And this gets back to your point 
about how do we know what is good? How, how, do we, how do we determine what is good? Let's follow Plato's reasoning out here. He doesn't seem to think that these can be defined, at least not by humans. Because over and over again, he talks about all the virtues and including the beautiful and the good, and they keep not getting defined. There's points where it looks like Plato is going to have one of his uh, speakers, usually Socrates, give a definition, but then something happens and keeps it from happening. Nevertheless, they can be experienced or seen, something like that. We get glimpses of them. The difference is, I think if we were able to define it, I need to work this out, but if we were able to define it, it would be reduced to something that could be used. Or it would fall into something, and there's a little bit of Wittgenstein hanging out in the background here with the, with the Tractatus and his view of ethics. But it seems to me that once we understand what the good is, we begin to, I mean, the good with a capital G, the good that is God's nature. Once we understand, if we were able to grasp that, we would have this knowledge of good and evil, and we would abuse it. Or it would become, I would say this, not abuse it. It would become something that it wasn't anymore, that it, that it really wasn't. It would become a transactional element, something that I use to leverage against God to get God to do what I want. That's how legalism, I and mean, we call that legalism, but that's how it generally functions. And so there's a sense in which the good cannot be defined because it's always out there beyond us and above us. It's a direction, and we get glimpses of it. I mean, he talks about this dramatically in the Phaedrus, even though it gets a little weird because there's pederasty stuff going on, sort of, uh, in, in ancient Greece and with Plato. But he says, when you see the beautiful one before you, the beautiful person before you, you are overcome with almost a kind of fear. It causes you to shiver, to sweat, because you're recognizing something. Now, this is Plato's weird sort of metaphysics, which whether he believed all this or not, it's, it's unclear to me. It's like you, you be, you've been reminded of something. You've been reminded of some deep goodness and beauty, because good, the good and the beautiful are the same to Plato. Good and beautiful thing that is calling you to life, and you can't quite grasp it. And in fact, his description is, if the, the lover and his boy... It's pederasty. Just get over that. But you can say a lover and anyone he or she happens to love were to consummate the attraction by having sex. It would actually undermine the capacity to experience the beautiful because you're, to use Philippians 2 language, you're, take, you're reaching out and trying to grasp the beautiful thing before you and making it your own. Or as Simone Weil says, we want to eat all other objects of desire. The, be the beautiful is that which we desire without wishing to eat it. We desire that it should be. As soon as you eat something, you undermine its beauty because you reach out and grasp it like the fruit or like equality with God. The good is something that is constantly leading us onward. And if it were ever clearly defined, we would it would cease to function. Let, let me give a better, let me give a clear example. Okay. Okay. One clear example. So what is the good of a friendship or a marriage? Let's say marriage. What's the good of a marriage? Well, I mean, it's growing and being intimate and having relationships and so on and so forth. Well, if you could clearly define what you're aiming at in a, in a marriage, then if you ever reach the point where you got that, do you end the marriage? 
Well, no. What you do is if you ever get to the point where you've achieved what you were what you were aiming for in a marriage, if your vision has not moved, if it's not like it's it's as if the goal you're aiming for keeps getting richer and deeper and higher and recedes even as you pursue it. Right. This is very Talbot Brewer. Uh, is retrieval of ethics. That's what the good, the good is like this direction that keeps calling you onward and upward, you might say. Excelsior. So the, uh, the idea is the good, the goodness of God is that sort of thing. It's not transactional where it's, where it's using your animal desires to get you to act a particular way so that God's animal desires are fulfilled. That's not how it functions. If we're looking at it that way, God has a lot of power, so he can really pull levers. He can aim a lot of big guns at you and therefore make you do what he, what God wants because what God wants is what matters because God has the big guns and can hurt you, right? You see the circular reasoning, right? The reason why, it, but that doesn't make God good. It just makes God powerful. But what does it mean for God to be good fundamentally? Well, we need to know what the good is. And, and we don't. Well, we do... But it's something that we don't fully know, but that, like you said, our, our knowledge of it grows. But we need people to sometimes help us see it, see things that we're not seeing. So yes. uh, let me you know, go, go way, way down with it. When we talk about something as something like good coffee. So Travis and I both love good coffee. Um, my wife is just as happy with Folgers in her cup as she is with good coffee in her cup, which really dismays me. You really and, need to have a talk with her. Well, we, I, I try, but when, when, when she drinks the coffee, she, she's obviously not having the same experience that I am. And I can say, you notice how that, that, how it tastes kind of like this here. And, or, you know, this, you know, I can point to different things that, to try and help her see it a little differently, but that doesn't guarantee that she's going to see it. That's the same thing with our definitions of the good. When we try to get a definition of the good as, as we understand God, as we begin to be drawn to God, it, it's, it's trying to get what we're doing is we're not saying this is the final definition, but the best we can do is say, hey, try to see things like I'm seeing them. And the words don't encapsulate the goodness. The words are attempts to, I guess you could even say, put glasses on another person so they can see the way that we're seeing. And this this is I mean this sounds all uh, kind of hippy dippity kind of thing, uh, but it it's there's a very strong relational component to this that you you have to try to see what the other person is saying. To, you can, we might say perceive because it has a richer uh, sense to it than just seeing, but it, it takes relationship like some random person off the street is going to have a much harder time getting me to see something than a dear friend or my wife, because they're going to know me. They're going to know uh, how I tend to, to, to perceive different things and they can draw on those to help me have the perception that they do. Similarly with God, you know, God is drawing us to, to him and, 
and he wants us to perceive him as as he is as the triune god is and that means that the goodness is also going to draw the goodness of god that is his nature is going to draw us as well if we're willing to see that but i think sometimes our hang up on power on god equaling power in the empire sense keeps us from being able to move beyond that and see the self-giving love of God as the fullest expression of who God is. Yeah. I think there might be a fundamental problem just in the way that we think about theology. And uh, if anybody knows me uh, that well, they know that I think systematic theologies are from the devil, but that's a little bit extreme. But the way I think our attempts to conceptualize and define God lead us to believe to believe in a God of power, of empire power. But when we relate to God, because I, I think people think this about God, but when they're in their personal relationship with God, I mean, I, these what you think about God will will bleed into the other parts of your life. But I think so many people recognize that God is fully loving in their personal lives, or they try to in their worship. And, and in their prayer life and so on and so forth. But this theological view of God, which is a God who is clearly defined, keeps keeps kind of bleeding in and interrupting and saying, well, that's an, let me, I think I've told this story before, but I asked, I asked a class of mine to, to give me all the major attributes of God one time. This was at a Bible college. And I got, love didn't appear on the list. They said, but omnibenevolent, wow. because, you know, that's a that's a neat, big, multi-syllabic word. Um, but uh, but love never appeared, which is really interesting. And I talked to a student, brilliant student after class, and she said, well, I would because I, I in class, I I tore into them for not saying love. Uh, <laughs> that was very like, loving well, of you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I am. Uh, students love it. So but she said. Well, I would normally, if you were talking to me personally, I would have said love, but this is an academic setting. So I said, so I think love is, love isn't very academic. I'm like, well, then something wrong with our academics. Well, I mean, but love isn't very clear. We can clearly define, we can clearly define transactions. We can clearly define empire power, but we, but when we talk about, the way that you know you love your spouse you can you can use all these words but it, it, it's all approximations and all about trying to get people to see what you see when you see the goodness of your spouse yeah. um it, this and this is what i'm saying this is for the fundamental problem with a lot of theology and a lot of philosophy is it try and this is what Plato was trying to get at. It's trying to make clear things that once you make them clear, they're not the same thing that you were talking about. And so as soon as we clarify what God's power is, it becomes empire power. And we're not talking about what God's power is anymore. What we're God's power is Christ crucified. What does that mean? Well, Jesus paid for your sins and now you get out of hell. Mm, yeah, but that's not do you, do you think that's all that's going on there? You think that Jesus as a Messiah is merely like some sort of, I mean, why can't God just forgive you? Why couldn't he have done it at a different time, in a different place, with a different set? You know, there's a, there's a, a thousand different questions you could ask. 
Christ and and it's but it's not just that it's that Christ's death and resurrection it's more than that it's not less than that it's more than that like we we've made it too too small a thing it's the the gospels aren't just leading to the four spiritual laws because the four spiritual laws you don't even need Jesus's ministry by the way all you need all you need to happen was Jesus be born die on a cross rise from the dead boom everything's taken care of like why did why was he why did he wait till he's 30 something to die if he should have just got it over with i mean, I mean it's, know, it, it seems like they shouldn't have gone to Egypt if that was the case when Jesus was a was a was an infant or a toddler. Like, they just let Herod kill him. Just get just get it over with. And so, uh, in fact, you know, if Planned Parenthood would have been bound back then. So let's get back to it. So remember, the the issue is what is how how should we view God to avoid the Euthyphro dilemma? But that's not really the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is how is it that we tend to perceive God in the same way that the sophists perceived God, that is particularly Euthro in this example. Well, they perceived the gods in the same way that they perceived humans. In fact, they seemed to perceive all beings as fundamentally having natural powers and fulfillment that was based on some sort of selfish gain. And ethics was an add-on that came if, if you needed it to survive, but it's merely a tool. It's not Fundam, it's not essential to your nature. Plato says, no, the good is essential to the nature of the gods, clearly essential to the nature of the gods, but also essential to us because to Plato, the good is that out of which all things come. Good is the source of all things. And so without the good, you can't, you can't even know what anything is without the good, let alone exist. You know, I mean, I think you need to exist before you know something, but there's, but there's no knowledge and there's no, there's no being itself without the good, but we stray from the good because we're ignorant. You know, there might be, uh, there's a debate about whether he believes in acrasia that is sort of a weakness of the will where you do what you know is wrong or whether we're ignorant about what is good and we're always act toward what is good, but we're just wrong or whether we know what the good is, but we make bad decisions because we are weak willed. That's sort of a debate on what's going on in Plato. But the uh, nevertheless, we all are drawn to the good one way or another because it's essential to our nature. We're all drawn to the good. Do we know precisely what it is? No, but it's but it's we know it's sort of that way, right? I mean, even even in you know Psalm thirty four, taste and see that the Lord is good. It doesn't say sit down and analyze and reflect. Now it does say there's a parts in scripture you're supposed to use your mind and so on and so forth. But it's always a, re- a reference to how do we know God is good? Well, look what he did. Look what God did. Look what God did with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with Joshua, with David, you know, look what, look what God has done. It's a reflection on God's character, a recognition of God's voice. And really I would say a faith that God is fundamentally good and that power is that God's power doesn't function the way the power of the world functions or the empire power functions. God works in a, in a different way. But this, this is very difficult. It's difficult to describe. I'll just put it that way. But it does get us out of the Euthyphro dilemma. And it, I think there are a lot of implications for, for how we view God in terms of, of this kind of power. There are a lot of implications but I think we're just going to kind of end there and let you sort of imagine it. But recognize that theology is there to protect worship. 
it's not there to def- to undermine your relationship with God, which theology has a tendency to do. And that sounds like I'm being anti anti intellectual. Like Joel and I run around with a couple of PhDs telling you to be stupid. We're not <laughs> we're not saying that. We're saying allow your theology to conform to your love and worship of God, rather than allowing theology to define God so clearly that you can't see God as anything but power. Yes. That happens to be good. That hopefully is good. And this is a very personal, this is a very personal problem. It sounds like I'm speaking of an intellectual problem, but this is extremely personal because I think there, again, I've said this over and over again. There are so many people who think that God quote unquote loves them, but they don't think God likes them because God is fundamentally power. He has a series of laws my life hasn't turned out that well, you know, or I failed a bunch and therefore God doesn't like me. That's a confused understanding of God, I believe. And, and there's actually neurological research out there that says the way you view God actually shapes the way your brain functions. Some of the neuroplasticity and and stuff. Um, And, you know, and how, uh, Trigger your amygdala gets how quickly it can be triggered. All of that can be can be connected to your view of God. Yeah, um, well, God is the one running the show, right? Yeah, and if that's the case, how I view God transforms my entire view of how I relate to the world. And but the, you know, there's a, again, there's the danger of the optimism versus pep- pessimism versus real hope, faith, love. So the Again, this is this isn't clear. The conclusion isn't clear, but recognize we we see glimpses of the good. We taste the good in friendships, in love, in the beauty that we see around us, in uh, in beautiful music, in you know we could say beautiful people, even in good food. I mean, something as simple as that can show us, a, a, give us a glimpse of the good. Yeah, are we not? Do we not? I mean, doesn't the Revelation talk about feasting? Amen. You know. And so, so there's, yeah, we see glimpses of the good and the gifts of God uh, all around us. We also see a lot of suffering and pain. And I think we tend to mix those two and we think we have a tendency to feel that God is powerful and arbitrary because the world seems full of power, selfishness, and, and arbitrary, you know, arbitrariness. Because good suffer, the terrible people win. It seems to happen all the time, but that's not who God is. We live in a fallen world and God loves us and he's drawing us toward himself. Uh, but it, you it's, know, but his, his ultimate victory is not going to be one of empire power. It's going to be of self-giving love. Yes. And we see that in the curse, in the death, in the submission and death of Jesus, who, you know, wept outside of Jerusalem saying, you, you know, what could bring you peace if you only knew it could bring you peace, but you, but you reject it. And now this, this temple will be torn down, uh, which we talked about this in previous podcasts too. Uh, empire power doesn't bring you peace. And I'm not just talking about whether you're in a colonial empire. I'm talking about whether the way we relate to one another is all, is almost 99% empire power. We're always trying to use others control them, manipulate them, even in nice ways. We do this all the time, even in quote unquote nice ways. We do this all the time. 
What does it mean to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? It means to throw off the sophistic view of God, the sophistic view of human nature that sees power as the number one key and ethics as merely a means to gaining more or a necessary means for survival. And in fact, see that I'm willing to die for the good. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to lay down my life for the one, well, for God, for my neighbor, so that because it is more important to be good than it is to, to be alive. Amen. Now, if I could just get myself to believe that, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, well, thanks yeah. for listening. Hopefully this, this one got a little bit fuzzy, but that's because we're talking about fuzzy stuff. Um, a lot of this, uh, some of this is in fact, review of stuff we've talked about before. And some of it's related to stuff that have been, that we've written on blogs on the website as well. And so I encourage you if you have more, que- if, if you're listening and you don't know what that blast we're talking about too bad, or go listen to maybe you can listen to some of the previous podcasts uh, or check out the blog or let us know. And, and, you know, we're, we're going to keep dancing around these issues. We're going to keep coming back to them. I, I heard someone say that uh, things don't stick until you've heard them seven times. So I, I feel like we've got a few more that we can say before we have to worry about overkill, but, right. um, you know, it, it's just, we, we know how it has changed our lives how it has changed our relationship with God to move from a uh, view of God that has a lot to do with empire power to a view of God that is self-giving love. And Mm -hmm. the idea that, that we are to reflect that, that that is where we find our ultimate fulfillment as well. You know, it's very difficult to, to live out um, and to, to fully personify ourselves, even in the way we, we perceive the world. But we know that there's something there. And as we keep being drawn to there, we, we hope that we can be drawing you there as well. Amen. All right. Well, thanks for listening, folks. This is Travis. This is Joel. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.